Tere ja tere tulemast Eurooplastele. What he said. What did he say? Um, that was, I think, I hope, hello and welcome to the Europeans in Estonian. I just thought I'd shake things up and open the show in Estonian this week because they've had elections there. And um, as Mr. Google Translate said in robotic and possibly quite bad Estonian, this is the Europeans. It's your favourite weekly podcast that shows off this continent as being actually kind of interesting. This is Katie in London town this week and I'm joined as always by Mr. Dominic Kramer in Amsterdam. What's happening? I've been having fun in our Patreon supporters group this week. Oh, Finally, yes. we, we got it up and running. Um, Let's be honest, Dominic, you got it up and running because one of us here is unable to use basic technological creations of recent years like Skype and Facebook. I don't know how you managed to do it. It's magic. But now there's people in it. We can talk to them. It's really cool. I love running a podcast with you because it makes me feel really tech savvy, even though I've got a really <laughs> basic knowledge. How did you add someone to this call? How are you so clever? Yeah, I don't know, Katie. It's just innate. Um, but yeah, the Facebook page is up and running and uh, people are already chipping in like really cool ideas and stuff. So that is way good. If you do fancy chipping into our little but growing fund for keeping this podcast running, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. Anyway, I should talk about what's coming up this week. We've got a great guest for you, Julie McDowell, who will be telling us about how she became obsessed with nuclear war and all the rather grisly preparations that countries made during the Cold War. Don't run away now if that sounds like it isn't your cup of tea. Uh, she has this rather magic way of talking about it in a really calm and fascinating manner. And also, if you're one of those people that sometimes skips the interview bits of podcasts, Dominic Kramer is one of them. Do not skip this one, or at least don't skip the end, because things get very weird at the end in a very good way. Sounds mysterious. That is coming up after... Oh, have we got um Commemoration Corner this week? Yes! <laughs> Actually, today, on the day we are recording, it is the 150th anniversary of the death of Hector Berlioz. Do you know who Berlioz was, Katie? Um, a classical music man? Yeah, he was. He was a French romantic composer. He was famous for writing operas such as Benvenuto Cellini and Les Troyens, and orchestral pieces such as Symphonie Fantastique and Harold in Italy. Harold <laughs> in Italy? That's such a funny name. <laughs> Harold in Italy. Is that one good? Uh, yeah, in fact, that was the final piece I played as a viola soloist when I was at school. Um, it's one of the few orchestral pieces with a nice viola solo. Oh, you'll have to play it for me sometime. Yeah, no, that wouldn't be good for anyone's ears. Um, okay. But I'll tell you a li- very brief bit about who Berlioz was. Uh, he was a very independent-minded guy. He first studied medicine following his father's profession, but then moved into composing and briefly managed to conform to the very conservative music scene of Paris back then to be awarded the Prix de Rome, which is the most prestigious thing a composer could get in France back then. I actually had him as my specialised topic during one of my French AS level oral exams. And it was actually, if I brag, the thing I got my highest mark in for the whole of my school time. Because I kind of cheated because it was meant to be like showing how good you were at like spontaneously talking in French. But I just memorised three pages of text about him. So whenever they asked me a question, I could just say a line of something really cleverly I got someone to help me write. Do you remember any of, any of it still? Can you give us a bit? No, I was just thinking about that. Hector Berlioz, il a été né. No, that's what I remember. It was like... <laughs> uh, très bien. No, I can't remember. I shouldn't speak in French. Because I still remember a bit from my Spanish GCSE one. Voy a hablarle sobre mi colegio. That's pretty much it. Oh, well done you. Yeah, thanks. It was all downhill after that. 
But happy birthday, Berlioz. Happy death day. Happy death day. <laughs> I find it a bit gruesome that we always celebrate these people's death days. It's nice. It's like that thing in Harry Potter. What thing? You know when they had like nearly headless Nick's death day birthday party? Oh, yeah. They're all those ghosts like walking through cakes trying to eat them. You're so much better at Harry Potter references than me. Well, I have to be better at something since I'm so bad with the technology. Who's it been a good week for? It has been a tentative good week for Kaya Kallas because she's on track to become the first ever female prime minister of Estonia after those elections we talked about all the way back in the intro. But because this is Europe and there is nothing that we love more than long, drawn-out coalition talks, it's not in the bag for Kallas yet. Her party, which is called Reform, came top in the elections weekend before last. They got 34 seats out of 101, so a third-ish. Reform are kind of centre-right, like business-friendly, but pro-European. And Kallas is now in talks with the centre-left party, who were running the show before the election to form a kind of grand coalition type thing. Together they'd have 60 seats, which would be a nice, comfy majority. So a good week for Macron-style centrism, you might think. But can you guess what the but is? There's an anti-European party that also did really well. Correct. Uh, Far right also did really well. It's a party called the EKRE. Do not ask me to pronounce what that stands for in Estonian. But uh, they doubled their support and they're now the third largest party in parliament with 19 seats. Scary. And uh, obviously this is not a thing that is limited to Estonia by any means. Um, In a bunch of countries, obviously far right and anti-EU parties have been doing really well. Germany, Italy and elsewhere. And I think it was a little bit different, but uh, on the Facebook group for our Patreon supporters this week, uh, someone was saying, I think it was Anne in Germany, hey Anne, that um, in Moldova as well, this anti-EU pro-Russian party has just done really well in elections and edged out the pro-European parties. But I don't know. I mean, every time there's an election in Europe, I feel like my newsfeed is full of both people saying, ah, the far right is taking over, and other people saying, you see, centrism isn't dead. So I think maybe it's a bit of both. I saw that even George Osborne, the centrist conservative ex-chancellor of the UK, just announced that um, he was part of a dinosaur age of politics and that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is the new politics. So if even someone like him is admitting it, then maybe centrism is dead. But no, it's not, is it? I think it's probably all right-ish for a while. But um, going back to Callas, she's an interesting woman. She's only 41, so she's pretty young for a prime minister. She's pretty dynamic and techie, just like me. She's a former lawyer, former MEP. Her dad was prime minister, so she comes from one of those like Justin Trudeau-style dynasties. He was really involved in Estonia winning independence from the Soviet Union in the early 90s. She wants some more centre-right stuff like tax cuts, but she's also super pro-EU. Very much a woman who seems to know where she's going, even though she was advised to campaign like a man for this election. This is what she got told by a couple of campaign advisors. Quote, wear trousers, cut your hair, be more aggressive, speak with a lower voice. What do you think of that? God, it's awful that women running for elections still have to face all that stuff. I mean, I know Hillary Clinton obviously faced a lot of that stuff in the last election. On that depressing note, who's had a bad week? You're going to think that I'm just trying to make this into a classical music podcast because I'm afraid I'm staying in that region after Commemoration Corner. Um, I mean, if we're going to do that, you're going to have to do it on your own, I think. True, yeah. You could do a Harry Potter podcast and I'll do a classical music podcast. Sorted. Deal. I'm going to risk my operatic career right now and give bad week to one of Europe's most famous opera houses, La Scala in Milan. The house... We, we refer to opera houses as houses, just so you know, in the business. So I'm just going to call it the house. 
The House has received fierce criticism after it was announced that they planned to accept the Saudi culture minister as a member of their board. A position that will come with the promise of 15 million euros of investment over the next five years for the Opera House, which is obviously very good news for them. But perhaps it goes without saying that many people feel cultural institutions should not be accepting money from a representative of a regime with such a terrible human rights record, especially following the killing of Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul last year. But should we be seeing it as progress that a Saudi minister is supporting an opera house? Because until 2018, there had never been an opera produced in Saudi Arabia. And until 2018, there were actually also no cinemas in the country. It's all part of Mohammed bin Salman's modernizing efforts, in inverted commas, to make Saudi Arabia more economically dynamic. He has promised to invest huge amounts in culture and entertainment over the next few decades. In fact, La Scala are not the only opera house that should be looked at with some scepticism. In fact, the Paris Opera House also signed a deal with Saudi Culture Minister last year to help set up an opera house and orchestra in the country's second city, Jeddah. Did you hear about that? I did actually remember that. And it didn't really, there wasn't that much of a fuss made at the time. No, well, it was in April. So it was before the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. So I think if it had happened after that, there might have been more of a fuss. Yeah. But yeah, it could be seen as progress or it could be seen as a rather sterile attempt at whitewashing the record of the Saudi Arabian government, whilst the country doesn't really do much to improve its human rights record. It comes at a time when European political leaders are stuck in a rather awkward place with Saudi Arabia. Following Khashoggi's murder, European leaders distanced themselves from MBS and his ultra-conservative regime. But bit by bit, there's been a creep back towards normal procedure. As for many of these European countries, the strategic relationship with Saudi Arabia is more important than taking a moral stand against despicable acts. Just last week, the UK Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt was in Riyadh trying to salvage the Yemen peace plan and, among other things, he pressured the Germans to end the arms embargo against Saudi Arabia. Some believe that there's never going to be a satisfactory investigation into the Khashoggi killing, so why alienate the Saudis anymore by pushing the issue and risking more regional instability? Or, who knows, an economic crisis in the West due to our dependence on Saudi oil? Going back to La Scala's dilemma, there have been calls from board members for the Italian government to intervene, and the issue has already been brought up in Parliament, I think by a member of Berlusconi's Forza party, but at the moment it looks like the Opera House's leadership want the appointment to go ahead, and the confirmation meeting will take place on March the 18th. So... Question, Katie, would you accept the culture minister as a member of our podcast board if it meant we got 15 million euros? (laughs) Yeah, I thought so. 15 million. Do it for like 15, frankly. No, sorry. I'm not. I don't really want to go on the record as saying that. Um, No. And I've got to say, even with this opera house, the house, I'm like, I'm sorry if it makes you sound like a Philistine, but like no opera is nice enough to justify putting it on with cash from a government that literally murders people in its consulates, is it? I was reading on the message boards of one of these gossipy classical music blogs and someone was pointing out saying, oh, maybe it's because they were going through next season and they pointed out that like five or six of the operas next season uh, feature beheadings in them. So they're like, oh yeah, we can support this. That's so bad. What is this website? It sounds like the gossip girl of the opera world. It's called Slipped Disc. Oh. Is it for like elderly opera fans? Some of us are elderly, some of us aren't. (laughs)
Let's go to Glasgow, one of my favourite cities in Europe, a city that is very much not a post-apocalyptic nuclear wasteland. It's really nice. But uh, one of its residents, Judy McDowell, is someone that spends much of her life thinking about nuclear apocalypses. She writes a lot about the Cold War and how different countries in Europe and elsewhere prepared for a possible nuclear war. And um, she's also, for her work, visited quite a lot of nuclear bunkers around Europe, which we're going to be hearing about. And last but not least, she is the host of a really great podcast about nuclear stuff called The Atomic Hobo. Didn't you say that you found it like weirdly soothing? Yeah, I actually found myself using it as my like bedtime calming podcast, which is maybe a bit strange. <laughs> Good night, children. Dream of nuclear war. She's just got a really nice voice. She has got a lovely voice. As you will hear now. I've been listening to your podcast the last few days. It is great. I've become hooked. Thank you. That's great to hear. I'm glad when people um, are new to it because some people have an impression that a nuclear war podcast will all be about the macho military side. And of course, it's not that at all. My podcast focuses on how ordinary people prepared for nuclear war. So I'm always glad when people realise it's not all about guns and bombs and planes. Yeah. Now, you said prepared past tense and uh, you are mainly looking at how they prepared during the Cold War. But do you think to some extent we should be thinking about how to prepare for nuclear war still today? I don't think we're at the stage where we need to have, you know, civilians preparing for nuclear war, you know, public information campaigns. But I, we can't forget about it. It's not as if the threat went away in 1991 with the end of the Cold War. The threat will never go away. It's going to be with us for the rest of time unless we find some magic formula to zap nuclear weapons and make them redundant, which isn't going to happen. It should still be there in the public consciousness, especially these days with Trump and Putin and North Korea. How did the cheery topic of nuclear war become the thing that fascinated you and the focus of your work in the first place? It started unbelievably when I was only three years old. I remember watching a film, an absolutely brilliant film, which I'd recommend to everyone, called Threads. It's a BBC film broadcast in uh, 1984. I was too young, of course, to take in what the film meant. It was about a, a nuclear war focused on the city of Sheffield. But I was able to take in the, the terrible feeling of dread that came from it. And I've carried that feeling all through my life ever since. When I began developing a career as a writer, I soon realised it's best to focus on something, to specialise in something. And of course, what better topic than the thing that's obsessed me since I was a toddler? So uh, I was wondering, how does it feel writing about such a gloomy topic day to day? Do you ever fight, think, oh God, I should have chosen something a bit lighter? <laughs> Um, no, that because my personality seems to lean towards that topic. Um, something light and bubbly just wouldn't be me. So um, I think I'm just quite temperamentally suited to, to nuclear war, if that makes sense. It's <laughs> a funny thing to say, but yes, it does make sense. <laughs> um, and for your excellent podcast, you spent quite a lot of time, and for your work in general, you spent quite a lot of time wandering around old nuclear bunkers in, in places like Prague and Budapest, which must have been very strange and evocative places in their own way. I was wondering if there was one of these that will really stay with you. I particularly enjoyed the bunker that I visited in Budapest because they had such a massive history. Nuclear bunkers which have been designed just for the Cold War, they are just offices really, that's all a nuclear bunker is, it's just office space. But the bunker in Budapest had a far more interesting history because it was for civilians. It was originally burrowed into the tunnels underneath uh, the castle rocks. So it was a hospital during the Second World War. 
And then when the uprising began in Hungary in the 50s, it was a hospital again to treat all the, the injured during the uprising. And then it became a nuclear bunker. They fitted it with the radiation filters, etc. And it's not just reserved for the politicians or the elites. It was cramming civilians in there who were wounded and suffering during the war and during the uprising. I recently listened to your uh, special episode about Chernobyl and uh, I didn't actually realise that it was an option to visit it as a tourist and it sounds totally strange. I was wondering, could you tell our listeners a little bit about that trip um, and would you recommend it as somewhere to go? I certainly would recommend it. Um, I wanted to go for a long time, but I was a bit too intimidated by the prospect. But then I read a brilliant book, Chernobyl Prayer by Svetlana Aleksevich, and it sounds like a cliche, but I put the book down and I, I felt as if my life had changed. I thought, I have to visit this place. I have to go there. I made some inquiries, thinking this will be very arduous and very intimidating. But I went with a tour company who were absolutely brilliant and they made everything so easy. I went in December on a Tuesday. So, of course, that's not peak tourist season in Europe. So there was no one else there uh, on the tour. It was simply me, my husband and Igor, our guide. We were the only tourists in Chernobyl on that day, so we had the zone to ourselves, apart from, of course, those who work in the zone. Igor turned up at the hotel in his car, drove us out there. It's about a two-hour drive from Kiev to Chernobyl. And, of course, going with a tour company, as you have to, you're simply not allowed to enter without one. He sorts out all the paperwork and all the insurance, so it's, it's very easy. And everyone there was very hospitable, very welcoming. We were even able to stop for lunch in a a little cafe in Chernobyl. There's one hotel in the zone. You can stop there for lunch. And we had a lovely lunch of borscht and then um, some pork. And in the cafe, they were playing um, Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon was playing on the TV, dubbed into Ukrainian. (laughs) And that seemed quite surreal. I was sitting there munching through my lunch, watching Lethal Weapon. And I thought, this isn't at all how I imagined a trip to Chernobyl would be. So, yeah, I just want to make clear that anyone who wants to visit, it's perfectly easy to do so. There are some simple basic safety rules, which are don't touch the ground, don't sit on the ground, don't rest your bag on the ground, because, of course, that might gather some um, contaminated dust. Wear sturdy shoes, wear sturdy clothing. Again, these are just simple rules which make sense anyway. For the people running the cafe and the, the little hotel that's there, Is it safe for them to be living that close to where the disaster happened? Well, there are people who live and work in the exclusion zone. Of course, there are the people who work in the cafe and there are, of course, the people who work in the plant. The nuclear plant, of course, is still being decommissioned. There's still lots of work going on there with building the new sarcophagus, uh, the new safe confinement, as it's called. It's safe to work there and and to live there as long as you do it on a, a temporary basis. So there are workers at the plant who are given free accommodation and free food. They can go to the staff canteen, but they can only do it for, I think it's 15 weeks at a time. So it's almost like working on an oil rig. You do a a huge stint of work and then you have a huge um, holiday or break, if you like. Or you can live in a town called Slivutic. Slivutic is a new town. It was built after the disaster to accommodate the people who were still going to be working at the plant. So a lot of people live out at this new town of Slivicic and they commute each day into the plant to work and then, of course, go back home again at night. Uh-huh. 
Um, I I've been really enjoying your podcast because strangely I find it quite calming, even though it's got this like nuclear uh, center to it. I was wondering, do you also feel that you come across things in your research about nuclear preparation that actually increase your faith in humanity despite the impending gloom? I do actually. That's a really good question. A lot of British nuclear war planning or civil defence planning carried over from the experience of the Blitz. Of course, it was horrific. Of course, thousands of people died. But it was survivable, of course, as we know, mainly because of organisations, voluntary organisations like the Women's Royal Voluntary Service. After a street had been bombed, for example, they would come in with blankets and hot soup and tea and they would arrange accommodation for people. And basically, they were there to care for you and to look after you. These ladies continued into the Cold War and they insisted on saying, we can still help people. We will do what we did in the Blitz. We will arrive on the scene after the bomb has dropped and we'll have our mobile canteens and we'll um, cook for people and we'll feed them and we'll keep them warm and we'll look after them. Now, that was lovely and it was perfect during the Blitz, of course, but you simply can't do that after a nuclear attack because, of course, a nuclear attack is simply not on the same scale as a conventional bombing attack. You know, statistics and nuclear testing told us entire cities will be reduced to dust. There'll be nothing there. So you can't turn up with your little vans dishing out tea and biscuits and blankets because no one will be left alive. It sounds quite sentimental, but it's also quite heartwarming to know that even in the midst of this horror, there would be people who were at least trying or at least hoping to try and reach out with a cup of tea and a blanket to to look after the injured. And that is quite warming, certainly. At the um, the other end of the spectrum, I was really interested. You did an episode about uh, a bunker in Prague that you visited, mm-hmm. and they'd taken some quite interesting preparations in terms of like trying to predict what kind of the psychological impact of impending nuclear war or like a nuclear attack might be on the people. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit about the design of the toilets in that bunker? I thought it was really interesting. It was a civilian bunker. The idea was if the siren blared in Prague. All the civilians who are local to that bunker would simply run there and you get a place. It's first come, first served. If you get to the door in time, then you manage to get a place in the bunker. And then the plan was everyone would stay in that bunker for three days. And over those three days, the worst of the fallout, this is the theory at least, the worst of the fallout will dissipate. Everyone can come back to the surface and they will be then taken on buses out into the nice, clean countryside. And of course, whether that would have worked or not is up for debate, but that was a plan. So civilians would have sheltered in this bunker for three days. And the idea was there will be, of course, panic. There will be hysteria. There will be claustrophobia. There will be terror, not only because you're enclosed in this very inhospitable space, but because you might have made it to the bunker, but maybe your mum or your husband or your, or your son didn't. So you'll be terrified and you'll be worried about what's happening to them up on the surface. So... The authorities knew there would be terrible panic and fear and hysteria down here. They worried about the possibility of self-harm and even suicide. Now, they worried about that for the the victims of the self-harm and the suicide, but they also worried about what effect that will have on others. You know, if someone starts to do that, will that cause hysteria to spread even worse through the bunker? So they tried to limit the threat of people self-harming or killing themselves by taking the doors off the toilet cubicles because they thought if someone wants to do that they're going to have to of course hide themselves away in a private space and the only private space in that bunker was the toilet because of course you can shut the door behind yourself 
So they took the doors off the toilets and they also made sure that you couldn't attach a string or a rope to the flushing mechanism. I did a bit of research and I found that this is actually common across other nuclear bunkers. I'm interested in this about how much similarity there is in the preparation across Europe in the types of bunkers and I know you're mainly focused on uh, the British preparation but during your research have you discovered a big difference between how the different countries prepared? I've discovered a big difference between the West and the countries behind the former Iron Curtain. The communist countries certainly seem to have more care for their civilians. If we look at, for example, Kiev and Moscow and Prague, they had huge, well, still have huge metro systems and they would have doubled as nuclear shelters. And again, they were just dished out on a first come, first serve basis. If you hear the siren, you run to the shelter, they'll pile as many people in as they can and then they'll close the, the, the doors on the metro. The ones in Moscow in particular are absolutely beautiful. They're very ornate, they're very decorative. They've got chandeliers, they've got murals, they've got marble. And yet, with the flick of a switch, a massive steel door will shoot down from the ceiling or be pulled out from the wall and turn that lovely, ornate, decorated space into a nuclear bunker. The East certainly took more care to look after their civilian population, whereas if you look at Britain, we're at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Britain had nothing at all, nothing for its civilians. We did during the Second World War, of course. That's because it was perfectly possible to shelter people from conventional bombs. But we simply, so the argument goes, didn't have the money to build nuclear shelters for the entire population. There were shelters for the military, of course, and for politicians, but nothing at all for the people. And then if you look at countries like Sweden and Switzerland, they have bunker space for almost it's like 99% of the population, even today are covered for nuclear shelters should the need arise. Yeah. Have you read that book um, by Neville Shute on the beach? The, uh, yes, yeah. yeah. Brilliant book. Uh-huh. It's amazing. This uh, book about a group of people in Melbourne who are awaiting a deadly radiation cloud after the Northern Hemisphere has basically been wiped out by a nuclear war. It's written in the 50s, wasn't it? I really recommend it to people, along with your podcast. <laughs> um, but I uh, have... One final question on like a very completely different issue. Um, I couldn't help but ask you about something that you've become a bit of an internet sensation for, your synesthesia. Could you explain to our listeners what happened when your tweet went viral and what it is that is your special power? <laughs> I like to think of it as, as a special power, yeah. I had published my latest podcast episode. It was one called What Would You Do? And it was about what would you do if, if nuclear war happened? So it was particularly grim. There was talk, of course, of suicide, of not wanting to survive. So I tweeted that and I thought... I'm a bit sick of always tweeting something grim and miserable. For once, I'm going to tweet something lighthearted and silly. So I tweeted, I have a condition or a special power called synesthesia. And that means that I can taste words. It's a neurological condition. Some people don't believe it exists. I've had some abusive comments on social media since this happened, saying it's a, I'm a fraud, it's a lie, but it's a genuine neurological condition, a genetic uh, condition. My sister and mother have it also. And what it means is I can taste words. Every single word in the language provokes a taste in my mouth. Sometimes an image, sometimes a sensation, but mostly a taste so I tweeted that thinking, 
one or two people will say, you know, what does my name taste like? And we'll have maybe 10 or 15 minutes of having a bit of a laugh on Twitter. But instead, the tweet went viral and I had to spend the next few weeks <laughs> answering thousands and thousands of queries. People from all over the world asking what their name tastes like. One woman said that she was actually recovering from a bout of cancer. She'd had chemotherapy. She said she hadn't laughed for about a year. But when I told her what her name tasted like, she was in fits of laughter. So it was lovely to hear that and lovely to entertain people for once rather than frighten them with my nuclear war chat. (laughs) (laughs) I'm almost too embarrassed to ask because you must be so sick of doing it. But can I possibly ask you what our names taste like? Of course, I don't mind at all. Oh, thank you. So what does Dominic Kramer taste like? Okay, uh, Dominic, 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 I need to split that up into syllables. So the Dom part of it is uh, quite funny. It's a little rubber duck, which has been (laughs) dipped in vinegar. (laughs) (laughs) And then the Nick part of it is it's a a biscuit. Specifically, it's a biscuit called Happy Faces. Uh, And this Happy Faces biscuit... Oh, it's also been dipped in vinegar now that I think of it. So that's a very vinegary name, yep. So you've got little rubber ducks dipped in vinegar and then you've got biscuits dipped in vinegar. Oh, wow. You're sour. (laughs) I am. I do love balsamic vinegar. I'm hoping it's more of that variety. Yeah, classy. (laughs) No, it's just cheap chip shop. Oh, (laughs) And what about Katie? Oh, Katie is lovely. Katie is a lovely sponge cake. Oh, Thank you so much, Julie. That's so nice to hear. And finally, what about the Europeans? Oh, Europeans, that's nice. That's um, opal fruits, although they're now called Starbursts. So it's nice, chewy, fruity sweets. Mm. Wonderful. I'm very happy with these answers. Thank you, Julie. You're welcome. (laughs) Who knew how delicious we would taste, Dominic? Um, you'd think that the Europeans would taste like you and me mixed together, but I don't think if you mix rubber ducks, vinegar and cake, you get opal fruits. I'm really disappointed that I'm vinegar. <laughs> I hate vinegar. Not even fancy vinegar either. It's so good. <sighs> Thank you, Julie, for taking the time to chat to us and tell us what we taste like. If you are interested in nuclear stuff, definitely check out her podcast and you can follow her on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell. My happy ending this week was suggested by our Slovenian friend of the podcast, Alias Pengov Bitenc, a.k.a. Pengovsky. He's good at keeping us informed when there is really important news happening in Slovenia. And perhaps it's a stretch to call this one important, but it's definitely a good one. Let's talk sandwiches. Okay. Everyone likes sandwiches, don't they? I do, certainly. Yeah, actually, I don't really love sandwiches. I'm lying. Oh. Um, I like a really amazing sandwich, but yeah, most of the time I avoid eating them, I realise. Well, your country's got... I'm going to get loads of hate mail for this, but your country's got quite boring sandwiches. There, I said it. The Netherlands has boring sandwiches. They do, and they're always open sandwiches. I don't mind an open sandwich. But anyway, get to the story. <laughs> yeah, okay. I meant to be talking about the fact that one Slovenian ex-MP does like sandwiches. I say XMP because he had to resign after he stole a sandwich from a shop in Ljubljana. Um, You may have seen this in the press about a month ago when a deputy from the anti-establishment ruling party LMS had to resign after this theft. He says he did it because he was so annoyed that the staff were treating him like air. That's literally a quote. They were treating him like air. I'm going to start saying that. Yeah, me too. And he wanted to test the supermarket security system. (laughs) 
This clearly didn't work out well for him. And the funny thing is that the only reason why he had to resign was because he was like bragging about how he decided to deal with this bad service during a committee meeting in Parliament where they were, in fact, side note, talking about the Polish meat scandal. Oh, yeah. Now, this is meant to be a happy ending. So uh, where is this going? Well, the bit that Alias brought to our attention was the fact that a sandwich shop in Velenje has decided to make good of this lunchtime saga. They have started selling a sandwich called The Deputy in honour of his demise. And they are not merely taking advantage of the situation for their own gain. No, they are also using this to raise money for charity with each sandwich sold. Isn't that happy? Oh, that's lovely. What's in the sandwich? I actually can't find any record of it online. We'll have to go and get one. Yeah, I think basically we're just going to have to add this to our growing list of places that you and I have to visit on our grand tour of Europe. Fine by me. As you know, I'm a big fan of Slovenia, so... I will pack my bags and go tomorrow. Thank you, Alias, for this beautiful tale. Thank you. Right, I am about to disappear deep into the Essex countryside for the weekend with my family. My parents are celebrating 40 years of being married. Isn't that nice? Oh, that's lovely. So we're going to go and shout at each other in the house to celebrate. And you've got to go and sing and wash yourself. Can I say that? I mean, you said it. (laughs) Too late. Um, Before I go and do that, we would like to thank some people who started chipping into the Patreon fund this week, specifically Arthur Klasens and Laura Simon. Laura Simon, she could be Laura Simon. I don't actually know where you're from. So let us know. We'd love to hear from you. As mentioned, Dominic is a technical genius and managed to finally get the secret Facebook group for Patreon people up and running. So that is very exciting. And people are already giving us a bunch of ideas for things that we can and should be talking about on the show. To join them, you can support us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. We'll be back next week with another great interview lined up, actually, yes. if I say so myself. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Europeans Pod, on Instagram, Europeans Podcast, or send us an email, Europeans Podcast at gmail.com. Have a good week, everyone. See you next week. Uvasti. Uvasti. <laughs> <laughs>